Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 6 of The Build Podcast. I'm Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, where I help companies accelerate growth by optimizing how they approach go-to-market strategy, segmentation, positioning, and of course, pricing and packaging. We're wrapping up the season this week, but not to worry, we'll be back in September. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a sneak peek. On this episode, I had the chance to catch up in the studio with Josh Bloom, partner at Simon Kucher, which is known as the world's leading pricing strategy consulting firm. Josh shared his perspective on the inspiration behind the firm's book, Monetizing Innovation, how companies with limited resources can still make data-driven pricing decisions, and the trends he expects to see in the next year. Josh, thanks for joining the Build Podcast. Could you give listeners a quick overview about yourself and your background? Absolutely, Kyle. I have an economics and finance background from Yale and the University of Chicago in terms of academic training. And then for the last 16 years, I've been a consultant in the pricing space, and I currently lead Simon Kucher's global software, internet, and media practice. It's a good background for pricing work. When did you end up catching the pricing bug and start to realize how important pricing is? I became interested in pricing more as a kind of academic scientific interest at first. But what kept me going over the last 16 years is that it really turned into a deeply held belief that pricing is one of the most powerful growth levers for businesses, really of all sizes, everything from startups to established companies. One of the things that fascinated me about pricing was how it touches almost every part of an organization, from product teams to marketing, sales, finance, and operations as well. And Josh, I want to dive into that a little bit more. But before we do, I suspect that some listeners will be familiar with Simon Kucher, but many won't. And I recently saw the firms now worked with 30 plus unicorns, including companies like Asana, Stripe, and Uber. Can you talk more about Simon Kucher and how you guys work with technology companies? Absolutely. So the company itself is over 30 years old. We have over 1,300 people worldwide, about 300 in the U.S., And in the technology space, we work with companies on everything from optimizing subscription business models, helping companies transition to cloud licensing models, and helping companies monetize their mobile business models as well. To give you an example, one of my partner colleagues pulled up his phone the other day and 22 of the 24 apps on his home screen were Simon Kucher clients. It's a super interesting story with Simon Kucher, you know, 30 years getting to 1,300 people globally. You know, you might not expect a company that focuses on pricing to be able to get that big. Could you talk more about kind of the history of the firm and how you guys were able to grow so fast? Absolutely. It's been 30 years of pretty steady growth, but there's definitely been a few touch points that have driven that and our strategy over the long run. One was maintaining our focus on top-line growth topics of pricing, marketing, and sales, and differentiating ourselves from other strategy consulting firms. The second is kind of almost the religious belief that the company should globalize and open offices in far-flung locations. So we have 38 offices worldwide now. And the last point here is a number of years ago, we realized that pricing as a discipline is actually very different from vertical to vertical. And we built out vertical specific practices that extend down not just to partners, but to the supporting teams as well. And you know, you've been an expert with software and technology companies for some time. I think you said 16 years and, you know, going back that far, that's the early days of SaaS and of cloud. If you were to reflect on some of your work with software clients, what are some of the most common mistakes that they make when it comes to pricing and packaging? That's a great question. So from a pricing perspective, definitely there is often a lack of confidence around charging for the value you deliver. I recently worked with one B2B software company where an internal sales survey highlighted pricing as the number one purchasing criteria. Whereas when we actually went out and talked to their customers and some of their prospects as well, it was dead last in the same list of 11 factors. So that type of disconnect, though extreme in that case, is fairly common. 
The second piece from a packaging perspective, as you mentioned, is that there are really two common mistakes. The first extreme is not having a packaging structure at all, either defaulting to a one-size-fits-all model or a huge menu of SKUs at the other extreme. But for those who have some sort of customer or sales-guided formal packaging structure or discovery process, the biggest weakness I often see is that the entire upsell path is predicated on a series of feature check marks. No effort is really made to speak to the underlying value message associated with tackling a new use case or a different workflow. Sometimes there's also an opportunity to tailor packaging explicitly to different segments, whether that's a different vertical, a buying organization, a decision maker, or even just the stage of company development. Josh, it's super interesting, that observation about packaging. I see some of the same things. What differentiates different packages is just sort of jargon and feature check marks. It's not customer driven. What tactics could companies follow to not fall into some of those traps? Yeah, absolutely. It is a very common problem. I think there's a natural desire to try to monetize and bring to the forefront every internal development that's created and add that to a packaging structure. The general concept here is that you should treat your pricing as part of the normal release schedule. So companies do a lot of planning around quarterly, semi-annual, annual releases, major release versions, et cetera. They should think about pricing and packaging the same way, that it should be aligned with that release strategy. And sometimes that means holding features or just treating features as pilots for a handful of customers before they actually become a prominent part of the packaging structure. That's some great advice. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. My perspective is that I think companies drive their packages sometimes based on their roadmap and should almost be thinking of a pricing exercise as a way to get feedback on that roadmap and to design packages that are going to be able to sort of accommodate the changing product and how it's going to look six months, 12 months, or maybe even more than that down the road so that the packages stay evergreen and don't need to be constantly updated. You know, one question that I get asked a lot When should a startup actually be doing proactive work around optimizing pricing and packaging? What do you think about that? It's a good question. The short answer is that it's never too early to think about pricing and willingness to pay. Otherwise, how do you know you're designing a product that can sustain a business model? The longer answer is probably that tech companies usually built a single initial product for a highly specific segment. They focused on that urgent need to create a business case. But as soon as they start to develop multiple products or acquire other products or expand into new segments, the topic of packaging will naturally come up as you need to kind of create fencing around those different segments and business needs, or you need to communicate that you are a multi-product company. It's always important, but I guess the level of depth and rigor and sort of like scientific level that you need to get into with some of that work probably gets a lot greater as you become that multi-product company. And, you know, when you think about who should be doing the work of pricing and packaging, like who should be in charge of that? Should it be responsibility of the product team or should there be a dedicated team that works on pricing? Who owns pricing is a question I get a lot, and it tends to evolve as the company matures. There's no one answer. I see it as more of an evolution over time. The stereotypical founder CEO typically plants the flag for initial pricing logic. Sometimes that founder CEO holds on too long, and I've often worked with companies where 10 years later, the pricing is still the brainchild of the founder CEO. 
Obviously, that's usually the case where the reins have to be let up a little bit and kind of professionalization of that process is usually required earlier. Over time, it's usually the case that product managers, especially as you start to get those second, third, fourth products, tend to be more empowered to come up with their own monetization strategy. But at some point, you reach a critical mass where kind of a marketing toolkit is usually seen as the ideal to shepherd that go-to-market strategy. Only in very mature companies with a large installed base does pricing usually fall into the laps of finance as the key stakeholders. But in terms of when to hire that first pricing lead or to start thinking about building out a team, most companies will find there's enough runway of both new product development and ongoing business optimization to keep a person busy in a full-time role once a company reaches roughly $100 million or so in revenue. The funny thing about that number is that number usually scales pretty well with the size of a pricing team. It's got a one FTE per hundred million in revenue. Before that, one-off engagements around major product events are usually the norm. And for those just tuning in, if you want to learn about a day in the life of one of those pricing pros, I definitely recommend the episode with Envision and SendGrid. You know, Josh, one area that Simon Kutcher is known for is around successfully launching new products. The firm even released a book on the subject called Monetizing Innovation that I know has been super popular in the startup world. What motivated Simon Kutcher to release that book? You hit on it. There are really two factors. One was to put more tools in the hands of entrepreneurs, that most pricing material and kind of publishing efforts out there are for people who are in highly established companies. We essentially wanted to demystify pricing methods and bring it earlier into the company lifecycle. The second real main goal was expressed in the subtitle of the book, which is develop the product around the price. Our research showed that 72% of new product launches failed to reach their business plan goals, and giving companies the tools to bring pricing into the R&D process was meant to help improve that success rate. If I think about how pricing does that, you know, it's not just putting like the price tag on a product. It should be like if you know how much someone will be willing to pay for a product that helps you understand whether you should kill a product early or actually accelerate, maybe put more engineers on it because this could be, you know, a game changing product for a company. Could you summarize for listeners some of your top tips for how to improve the odds that an innovative product will succeed? Yeah, absolutely. The book itself has a nine-factor framework. I won't go through all nine on the podcast here, but I'll pick my favorites. <laughs> so my favorites are, are number one, you have to have the willingness to pay conversation early and often. There's no time too early to have that. It should be kind of a pre-revenue discussion, as you said, to make sure you are actually building the right products for a differentiated use case. The second most important factor that I drive home to companies of all sizes is that it's more important to define how you charge than to define how much you charge. That is the subtle difference that the concept of settling on the right pricing metric, that fundamental unit of value, and that value exchange between you and your customers is more important than picking a specific price point. You could say this is especially true for subscription products as well. If you're able to find a metric that organically grows over the customer lifetime, you're already driving a land and expand model. You've kind of planted that flag with a lower entry point as people start to get use and value in the product. And as they develop more of an attachment to it, start to use it more deeply, you have a monetization hook that doesn't come off necessarily as a pure price increase as you go up for renewal, but is really just a restatement of that relationship and how much value they're getting out of the product. I'm interested in your take as well. What do you think is in the book that would be helpful for founders? 
You know, I think that just the specifics around how to have a pricing conversation comes up. I mean, a lot of times founders, they haven't done this before. They don't really even know where to start. And so the questions that they would default to ask would be, what would you be willing to pay for this? But, you know, that might not give them the best feedback. So I think some of the specific tactics and advice from the book is really helpful for a lot of companies. So I'm curious, when companies come into OpenView, what's some of the biggest gaps they have in their business plans when it comes to pricing and monetization? You know, the very first one tends to be just that pricing was never, you know, a decision that was made based on like scientific rigor or formal process. It probably was a couple people in the room whiteboarding something and then trying it out. And so there's just generally a need to take a more objective look at the market landscape willingness to pay the ROI that you're providing for customers and refresh pricing and packaging in a way that's a little bit more scientific. But I think the broader challenge that I see is that in order to attract venture funding, a lot of companies talk about how big their market is and they're targeting, you know, a billion dollar or multi-billion dollar market. And, you know, sure, their software is applicable for that. But at the stage when we invest, they have limited resources, relatively small marketing budget, handful of sales reps. They're not really able to target that full billion dollar market. And I think it actually does them a disservice to be targeting too big of a market because it really is helpful from a pricing and packaging standpoint to get extremely specific about the different segments that exist in the market and really the needs, behavior, willingness to pay of those segments so that you can craft the right message towards them and command the prices that are going to be based on, you know, that segment specific behavior. And otherwise, with a peanut butter approach, you're almost always going to be underpricing because there are going to be pockets of the market where you're providing a tremendous amount of value and you're not capturing in that upside. Yeah, absolutely. Working with both startups and incumbents with a large base of diversified customers It's definitely the case that incumbents are more concerned about companies that have a really specific segment focus and are highly disruptive in that market and are terrified that they'll use that strength to come to dominate the whole market. Companies that try to target every segment on earth without having the resources to do so tend to be less successful. And Josh, so with the book, what have founders told you has been most helpful? So I guess turning the table and you having conversations with them, like what are the biggest insights from their perspective? I think some of them are just the practical concepts, you know, initial research questions like Van Westendorp, having an open-ended question, asking people what's an acceptable, expensive, prohibitively expensive price to pay for their software is something that is kind of eye-opening. Pricing research isn't dominated necessarily by complex mechanisms like conjoint analysis. Those are oftentimes a nuclear warhead when what you really just need is a screwdriver. And the basics of pricing and having that conversation early are pretty powerful, even at a startup stage. Yeah, so even just sort of like quick, tactical, practical, easy things to do. People have probably never taken a pricing class. Pricing wasn't taught in their MBA. And especially if you're like a technical or product-oriented founder, you wouldn't even know that these sort of options exist without reading the book. Exactly. I've been seeing in the market more of a trend towards some innovative value metrics, whether that's like usage-based pricing or looking at ways that companies can get creative beyond just charging you know, per user per month in that kind of original Salesforce motion. I guess when you look at how to be successful with value metrics, what should companies be thinking about? How can they find the metric that's right for their customers and their market? Yeah, it's definitely something that's changed over the years. When I started working in software, 
user-based pricing was about 50% of the monetization models out there in the software space, and now it's under 30%. And what has really risen up is these usage-based models. And there's a couple of things that have enabled that. Obviously, kind of putting software on a cloud platform has allowed for the telemetry to be able to track usage over time, which was more difficult when products were often installed behind a company firewall. So just the pure ability to track different usage metrics has obviously increased over the years. And there's just a general growing acceptance that from a purchasing environment, this idea of tying what you pay to the value you derive is more important than budget predictability. So the only challenge with a usage-based metric then is really that predictability angle, is making sure that companies are comfortable that their bill won't explode. But that's a topic that can be tackled through different pricing structures by having, instead of just pure pay-as-you-go type licensing models, commitment models, volume discounts, other elements that provide certainty to the purchasers that their bill won't go up exponentially as their usage grows. In the developer space, once people started being able to pay for AWS based on exactly what they were using and how much they were using, I think they wanted to start paying that way for just about everything else that they purchased, which created almost no barrier to entry to try out a product. But then if the product is successful in an organization, you know, you could end up having hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars of spend on it. And that ability to land and expand is extremely powerful. And you know, some of the listeners of the podcast will be founders of early stage companies who are about to launch or just launch their products. For companies that have extremely limited resources, how can they still take a data-driven approach to monetizing their new products? Yeah, so the first order of business should really be to roll up your sleeves on the competitive landscape. That's the data that is most readily available. Not just what features they have built and doing kind of a feature-by-feature comparison, but what models have they used to monetize? Are any of them more successful than others via differentiated approaches? And even if there's kind of consistency within the market, is there customer frustration with what's out there? Is there a stagnation in the market or a feeling of over-complexity that could be disrupted with a simpler model. Essentially, pricing could be a competitive weapon or a way to disrupt incumbents if you come out with something that's fundamentally more appealing, radically different. The second thing I would urge kind of founders to do is employ basic pricing research into initial product feedback from potential customers. Don't get intimidated by the concept of statistical significance. Most people are not running around doing pharmaceutical trials, trying to predict elections where two or 3% difference matters. Directional signals are really sufficient for big picture decisions. Optimizing price points themselves may require a, a large sample of either transactional data or market data. But as I mentioned before, how you charge is ultimately more important than how much you charge. So that first order of business, having those conversations about pricing models and about willingness to pay should really come first. The last thing I'll mention there is that in the early days, the CEO should own this. I talked about them handing this off at some point, but one of the strong factors of our research that went into the Monetizing Innovation book was that strong CEO involvement led to 35% greater likelihood of a product launch being successful from a pricing and monetization perspective. What that means to us is that the CEO founder should own the original pricing decision and give up some of the reins to professionals with a strong marketing toolkit over time. This idea of kind of a pricing committee that's led by the executive team is a concept that is really best practice. 
you know, what's the single most important question that a founder should be asking their target customers to help them monetize their products? It's a little bit of an oblique question, but the way I would think about it is that the most important question to ask is how using their product would change either business workflows or if you're talking about a consumer product, people's lives. Ultimately, what outcomes you're trying to drive with your products. If you can build monetization around that outcome, then you've created a perfect value exchange. We talked a little bit earlier about consumption-based pricing, which I think for highly technical products is a profound model. But most products, you're not going to be specifying kind of technical resources. You're really gearing towards trying to identify what difference you've made in the company and the company's behavior. I think that's a great point. I think if you can understand what's the ROI that you're bringing for your customers or what's that economic value, then you can start to also understand what corresponds with getting that customer more value. So how does increased usage of X or increased users end up leading to better ROI? And then that can actually help drive the value metric as well. Yeah, the other thing I like about ROI research very early on is that it's not just siloed to the pricing domain. ROI research can really be the kind of building blocks for initial sales conversations and marketing material. It helps kind of build that value story, especially in negotiated product environments, because price is really the extraction of that value you've created. So you need a really strong sales talk track around that value creation element, and a lot of that can be underpinned by ROI discussions. The other thing I'll say about ROI measurement or economic value add, these types of concepts, is again, these aren't necessarily meant to define an exact price level. They're meant to create kind of an umbrella under which you can monetize. So again, precision is less important than having the conversation at all. Well, and I think it goes back to something you said towards the very beginning about a common mistake is that folks don't have confidence around charging for the value they deliver. But if you actually have a really good understanding of the ROI that you're creating for your customers, I think once you sort of have that nail down and you can prove that it's quite high, that drives a lot more confidence for the entire organization. And actually, Josh, to your point about ROI pricing, I get asked that a lot of, you know, can you actually charge based on the ROI that you deliver or like true performance-based pricing? I haven't really seen that yet in the market. Have you seen that done effectively? Half of Simon Kucher projects have a success fee component at this point, but (laughs) um, I think what you're driving at is for software companies, are you able to measure outcomes and have that success-based pricing? It's honestly pretty rare. I know a handful of software companies that do go down that path of measuring revenue impact, or it's actually more common in a cost savings environment. So a lot of companies that work in spaces like supply chain optimization will take a percentage of the cost of goods sold reduction, or you'll have some companies that are operating more on things like billing efficiencies. So if there are companies in the healthcare financial space that help with bill collection, et cetera, they're able to tie their outcomes directly to cost savings. So that's really more the domain of true outcome-based pricing in software. And then looking ahead to the next year, what trends do you predict around pricing and monetization? Sure. So 
In terms of what we've been seeing lately in the B2B space, we're seeing kind of an expansion of what a software company even is. A lot of companies that were traditional hardware players or networking equipment players are trying to pivot to monetize their software IP and try to pivot to subscription models in many cases. There was, again, this kind of cloud environments, the ability to have virtual appliances that can run on third-party hardware. They've taken the elements that are commoditized, the hardware development process, and made that something that can be outsourced to either infrastructure as a service or other hardware players. And they've decided to really try to capture the value on their software assets. So the first piece is just expanding the definition of what even is a software company. In the consumer sector, there's a lot of interest in injecting mobile payments into apps and how to monetize those transactions. We've worked with a lot of companies lately where packaging and pricing is the core concept they're trying to tackle, but there's always this side element of payments of kind of how do we monetize payments? How do we encourage payments on our platform as opposed to other platforms? Again, as consumers get more comfortable transacting within a mobile app environment and not necessarily their truly banking or financial services applications. That's what's come to the forefront is really an important part of long-term monetization strategy. Even you know, B2B software companies that have some sort of B2B2C component can realize that they're not just monetizing that business customer, like a mind body, but they might also monetize businesses and customers. So you can find multiple revenue streams, which is you know, never a bad thing. Your final question for you, what's one SaaS company that you admire from a pricing and packaging standpoint? Yeah, it's hard to pick just one. I've worked with over 100 software companies, but I'll throw out a few that are in the news and I know have spent a fair amount of time really optimizing their monetization models. So PagerDuty is one that just IPO'd recently, a very successful IPO, 25 times revenue. They did a kind of tune-up of their packaging and pricing strategy before IPO. And then there are larger companies that have built out entire teams dedicated to kind of pricing and monetization. Two that come to mind, LinkedIn and Atlassian. I believe you had Abdi Tembawala on the podcast as well. Both of those have really strong teams that have fueled tremendous growth for those companies, oftentimes measured in hundreds of millions of dollars of enterprise value. Yeah, those are all great companies. And how can listeners find you if they want to learn more? Yeah, if these topics struck a chord, you can feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, just Joshua Bloom, or drop me a note at joshua.bloom at simon-kucher.com. Thanks, Kyle. Always good catching up with you. Likewise. Thanks again, Josh. Thanks for tuning in to the last episode of Season 6. After Labor Day, OpenView partner Mackie Craven will kick off the next season, which will be about product-led growth. We'll hear from PLG companies like Calendly, Zapier, Clearbit, Auth0, and more. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you enjoyed this season, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating or write us a review so others can find us. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on the OpenView blog. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.